light out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Today, we're going to be diving into the very disturbing case of serial killer couple Fred and Rosemary West. These guys are definitely some of the most vile and just disturbing humans to ever walk the earth. And we're going to dive deep into what made them do what they did. Before we get into the episode, though, this episode is brought to you by Babel Stamps, Raycon, and Every Plate. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to remind everybody that if you're not following us on Spotify, make sure you go and follow the show on Spotify right now. You can also watch the video version of the show there as well, which is really cool. Also, we have a YouTube channel and a TikTok now, and it's at Lights Out Cast. With Halloween right around the corner, I have some very special content specifically related to Halloween, which I'm excited about, as well as a bonus episode, which will be coming out at the end of the month. So look out for that. But let's just go ahead and dive right into this one. As much as I don't want to dive into this one, if you've ever heard of these guys before, you know just how truly disturbing Fred and Rose were. So just forewarning, this episode is graphic in nature and listener discretion is advised. So let's start by taking a look at Fred. And we'll go all the way back to the very beginning to hopefully gain some understanding of where things went terribly wrong for Fred West. So Frederick West was born September 29, 1941 in Munch Markle, Herefordshire, UK. He was born into a poor family of farm workers who lived in a house known as Bickerton Cottage. The surrounding land was filled with farms and two-story houses. His father was Walter West and his mother was Daisy Hill. He was the second of six children, and from an early age, Fred was a witness to his father having an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Supposedly, incest was an accepted part of his childhood household, and his father even showed him acts of bestiality with the farm animals from an early age. His father told Fred that he could do whatever he wanted, but the key was to not get caught doing it. And after having his father as one of his only role models, Fred accepted things like incest and bestiality as normal. Sexual taboo became just another normal thing in his house. It's also believed that his mother Daisy began sexually abusing him from the age of 12. Despite the taboo behavior at home, Fred excelled at woodwork and artwork at school, but he suffered academically. And many of his classmates claimed that he always got into trouble. So by the age of 15, he dropped out of school in December 1956, and he began working as a laborer on one of the local farms. During this time, he and his brother John often went to a youth club in a nearby town. The other kids there often made fun of his accent and called him a country bumpkin. At the social events, he acted aggressively toward the girls and the older women. He would even approach the women and fondle them with no consequences. Only two years later, in November 1958, he suffered a terrible motorcycle accident and he fractured his skull and broken arm, as well as a leg. Due to the accident, he spent an entire week in a coma, and when he finally came out of the coma, he had to walk with braces for several months. His family members reported that he had become extremely afraid of hospitals and prone to fits of rage. And Fred was just never the same after the accident. Two years later, in fact, he would find himself back in the hospital. He and another girl were talking on the fire escape outside of the youth club. In mid-conversation, he decided to grope her, so she punched him in the face. At that point, he stumbled backward and fell from the two-story fire escape and hit his head. He was actually unconscious for nearly 24 hours. Many believe that this head trauma and childhood sexual abuse shaped him into the absolute monster he would later become. And by the age of 20, the damage was done. In June 1961, Fred's little sister Kitty told her mother that Fred had been raping her for six months straight. And now he had impregnated her. She was only 13 years old at the time. Fred was actually arrested the same month when the police interrogated him. Fred confessed that he had been molesting young girls since his early teens. 
He even asked, doesn't everybody do it? Fred's mother was supposedly horrified by his actions, but she was still prepared to testify in his defense. Kitty had prepared to testify against him, but under the pressure from her family, she ended up refusing to testify. So the case fell through, and Fred dodged a prison sentence. After the mess, most of Fred's family disowned him. His mother actually banished him from the house, so Fred was forced to move in with his aunt Violet across town. Almost a year later, he would eventually reconcile the relationship with his parents, but most of his siblings never spoke to him again. His brother John was the only one that remained close. After dodging a prison sentence, Fred ran into an old girlfriend, Catherine Costello. She was better known by her nickname, Rena, which she used during her time working as a prostitute. They had first met at a local dance hall in 1960, and they dated for several months before Rena returned to her home in Scotland. When they met up again, it was almost two years later in September of 1962. Fred was 21 years old at the time, and Rena was pregnant with the child of another man. Supposedly, she was pregnant with a mixed-race child, and her family disowned her for it. Being disowned by their family was one of the things that Fred and Rena had in common. After reigniting their romance and dating for two months, Fred and Rena got married on November 17, 1962. The only guest at the wedding was Fred's younger brother, John. After they married, they moved into a place in Cobridge, and Rena gave birth to her daughter, Charmaine, on February 2, 1963. Even though she was Rena's biological daughter, they claimed that she was adopted. Her biological father was from Pakistan, and they were embarrassed about her being an interracial child since they were both white. Soon enough, they would have a white daughter that they would claim as their own. By the end of 1963, Rena was pregnant again, but this time with Fred's daughter. She was born in July 1964, and they named her Anne Marie. Meanwhile, Fred's lack of education and the charge of molesting his little sister made it hard for him to find work. So he settled on driving an ice cream truck so he could support his small family. They had enough to hire a family nanny named Issa. She helped Rena raise the kids, and at first she thought of Rena as a considerate mother, but she struggled to bring up her two children. Plus, Fred would often come home from work and treat the children terribly. He forced his daughters to stay in the bottom section of a bunk bed where he installed bars between the bunks. They stayed in this makeshift cage whenever Fred was home and they were only allowed out when he was at work. This was only the tip of the iceberg. The family's life at home was absolutely miserable. One of the nanny's friends, a 16-year-old named Anne McFall, ended up spending a lot of time at the house, and Fred eventually began a relationship with her. He later admitted that he had a handful of affairs during his marriage, and he even fathered at least one child outside of their marriage. When Rena caught on to Fred's cheating, she also began to have an affair with a man named John McLaughlin. And one night, Fred found the two of them in bed together. He ran over and punched Rena as hard as he could. In response, John hopped out of bed and attacked Fred. He sent one fist into his head, but Fred drew a knife and sliced a shallow wound across John's abdomen. John sent another fist into Fred's head, and this time Fred backed off. After this incident, John later said that Fred was quick to attack women, but he was terrible at fighting men his own size. Despite the attack, John and Rena continued their affair. Week after week, John noticed that Rena would come over with bruises all over her body, and it became quite obvious that Fred was constantly beating his wife. So in return, John went over and constantly beat Fred within an inch of his life. After several beatings, Fred's violence against his wife faded. But now Fred picked on someone even smaller. John once saw Fred out in his ice cream truck. Rena's daughter Charmaine was a little older than a toddler at this point, and she went up to Fred and asked him for an ice cream. John watched as Fred slapped her across the head, and in response, John dragged Fred out of his ice cream truck and beat the living shit out of him. But it seemed like no matter how hard he beat him, Fred wouldn't stop attacking his own family. His violence escalated to the point where on November 4th, 1965, Fred actually ran over a four-year-old boy with his ice cream truck and killed him. Fred claimed it was an accident, and crazy enough, the police eventually cleared him of any wrongdoing. 
Even though he didn't do anything wrong in the eyes of the law, he still feared the hostile reaction of the locals. After this happened, he obviously knew his ice cream truck business was over. So in December, he moved to Gloucester with his two daughters, Charmaine and Anna Marie. He then rented a caravan to stay at a nearby trailer park. Against her better judgment, Rena also joined him in February 1966. The nanny Issa and her friend Anne McFall also joined. Both of them were poor and desperate for work. So all six of them lived in the trailer together. Fred then found work driving a truck that transported animals to a slaughterhouse. They mostly depended on Fred for money, and since Fred knew he had control over them, his dominance grew. By early 1966, he grew prone to violent mood swings, and he often beat all three women. He was also physically abusive towards his stepdaughter, Charmaine, and he allegedly started sexually abusing her too. And since money was tight, Fred encouraged Rena to return to sex work. As you can probably imagine, their living conditions were absolutely horrible. The abuse constantly escalated and Fred demanded sadistic sexual acts. So Rena desperately reached out to John and begged him to rescue all of them. And together they devised a plan. John and Issa's current boyfriend would drive his minivan over to the trailer park and then pick them up. Then he would drive them over to Scotland so they could be free. But by this time, Anne had fallen in love with Fred. And Fred even promised to marry her one day. So once she heard of their plan to escape, she informed Fred. And Fred responded by showing up at the time they planned to escape. And once again, Fred and John had a standoff. Like always, John began beating the shit out of Fred. And in a desperate attempt to protect himself, Fred grabbed onto his two daughters and used them as shields. Police were eventually called and everyone left the scene. And Rena left with John. And Fred told her that if he ever saw her again, he would kill her. Their two daughters ended up staying with Fred, but Rena came back to visit them as often as she could. The more she visited them, the more she saw that Anne had become a mother figure to them. And in an act of anger, Rena stole some belongings from Fred's caravan before returning to Glasgow. A month later, she was arrested for the theft, and she returned to Gloucester to face trial. The court then sentenced her to three years probation, and after the incident, Anne decided to move into her own caravan at the trailer park. Rena then alternated between living with Fred and living with John, and despite the weird living situation, Anne truly believed she could live a better life if she was married to Fred. She then even tried to convince him to divorce Rena and marry her, but the more she pushed, the more Fred resented her. She tried her best to convince him, but he still knew. He was in total control of the situation. No one could manipulate Fred. It was always the other way around. So when Anne kept pushing, the more Fred wanted to get rid of her for good. In July of 1967, Anne was 18 years old and eight months pregnant with Fred's child. And one night, she just vanished. Her van was left vacant in the trailer park and she was never reported missing. All traces of her were gone. And she was never heard from again. It wouldn't be until June of 1994, almost 30 years later, when her dismembered remains were found buried at the edge of a cornfield. Her limbs had been cut off and many of her fingers and toes were missing. There was also evidence that suggested her unborn child might have been cut out from her womb. With Anne out of the way, Rena returned to live with Fred, and they moved out to the Lake House Caravan Park. Their romance was reignited, but it fizzled out after only a year. She left him again and also left the two kids in his care. Fred had no one to help him take care of the girls, so he temporarily placed them in the care of social services when he couldn't take care of them. Two years later, in early 1969, Fred met a 15-year-old girl named Rosemary Letts. He was 27 at the time, but the age just didn't matter to him. He met her at a bus stop in town, and he struck up a conversation. After getting to know each other, he found out she went by the name Rose. Rose was born in Northam, Devon after her mother went through a difficult pregnancy. She was the fifth of seven children, and like Fred, she was born into a poor family. Her mother suffered from severe depression, and she went through electroshock therapy when she was pregnant with Rose. Many believe that this electroshock therapy actually caused some prenatal developmental injuries in Rose before she was born. 
Just days before giving birth to her, her mother did one more shock treatment. She had developed a habit of rocking herself in her crib at an early age, and this carried on into her later years. When she got older, Rose would rock her head back and forth for hours on end. As a toddler, she would swing her head back and forth until she seemed to hypnotize herself. This got her the nickname, Dozy Rosie. Her parents also separated when she was a teenager and she moved back and forth between her parents' house. Living with her mother was fine, but her father suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. He went through extreme fits of rage and violence, and he constantly sexually abused Rose and her oldest sister Patricia whenever he felt like it. When Rose hit puberty, she was fascinated by her confusing sexuality and her developing body. She would often undress herself and walk around the house naked in front of her younger brother, Graham. By the age of 13, she would wake up in the middle of the night, creep down to her brother's room, and molest both of her younger brothers in their beds. Just like Fred, she began to normalize sexual taboo and sexual assault from an early age. So when they first met, they already had something in common. They just didn't know it yet. At first, Rose thought Fred was unkempt and strange. She thought he was a tramp and he always talked about sex. But after a while, she loved the attention that he gave her. Fred made sure to be at the bus stop on her schedule so that they would run into each other. Each time they did, he asked her to go on a date, but she always refused. At most, she would allow him to walk her home. From their conversations together, Fred quickly realized that Rose had never had a boyfriend, but she was quick to talk about sexual topics with him. Then Fred brought up the fact that his wife had left him and he wanted more children so that Rose would feel sorry for him. And after only a few days of talking, Fred discovered that Rose worked in a nearby bread shop. So one day he lingered outside the shop and told a local woman to go inside and give Rose a gift for him. The woman entered and asked for Rose. And he told her that the man outside wanted her to have this gift. A few minutes later, Fred came in and asked her out on a date. Finally, Rose accepted. After this, the two of them began a relationship, and Rose often visited him at the trailer park where he lived with his two kids. It didn't take long before she took over the responsibilities of taking care of the kids, and she noticed that they were neglected and needed care and affection. Rose often had to insist on taking care of the girls because she saw how neglected they were. Rose then left her job at the bread shop and became a full-time nanny to the children. In order to cover for Rose, Fred gave Rose's parents money every Friday to convince them she still had the job at the bread shop. After a few months of dating, Rose finally introduced Fred to her family. But as expected, they ended up hating him. They couldn't believe that their daughter would date a much older man. Plus, Rose's mother thought he was a boastful, arrogant, and pathological liar. Her father also disapproved and he threatened to call social services on Fred if he kept dating his daughter. Even though Rose's parents didn't get along with each other, they came together to forbid their daughter from dating Fred. But it was no use. She defied them. Later, they heard rumors that she began prostituting herself in Fred's caravan. Supposedly, both Fred and Rose invited men over to the caravan to have sex with Rose. So her parents finally reached out to social services and they put Rose in a home for troubled teens in August of 1969. She was only allowed to leave under special circumstances, and when she did leave, instead of going to her parents, she would go and visit Fred. When Rose turned 16, she left the home for troubled teenagers and returned to her parents. The only reason she didn't go back to Fred was because he was currently serving a 30-day sentence for theft and unpaid fines. But right after he got out, Rose went to go live with him. Fred picked up his two kids from social services and returned to his flat in Chelton Hum to live with Rose. Rose's father made one more desperate attempt to stop his daughter from seeing Fred. In February 1970, it was discovered that Rose was actually pregnant with Fred's child, so Rose was placed back into state care. Once she agreed to terminate her pregnancy and return to her family, the state discharged her on March 6, but Rose didn't follow through. Instead, she went back to live with Fred. And when her father found out, he told Rose she was never welcome in his house again. On October 17, 1970, Rose gave birth to their first child. 
They named her Heather Ann. Some suspect that the child wasn't actually Fred's. It might have actually been Rose's father's child, but no one knows for sure. Only two months after their daughter was born, Fred was caught stealing car tires and a vehicle license. He was then convicted and served a six and a half month sentence. Meanwhile, Rose took care of her newborn and Fred's two children. According to Anna Marie, which was Fred's middle child, she and Charmaine were constantly and physically and emotionally abused while Rose took care of them. Her and her sister hoped that one day their mother, Rena, would come back and take them back. According to Tracy, who is a childhood friend of Charmaine's, she said that once she entered their flat unannounced and saw a frightening scene, apparently Charmaine stood naked on a chair. Her mouth was gagged and her hands were bound behind her back with a belt. Rose stood next to Charmaine with a wooden spoon in her hand, and it looked like Rose had been beating her with it. Not long after, on March 28, 1971, Charmaine was treated for a severe puncture wound to her left ankle. Rose's excuse was that Charmaine had had an accident in the house, and her injuries were never reported to social services. As the violence escalated at home, when Fred was still in prison. One day in the summer of 1971, Charmaine went missing. When Anna Marie asked Rose where her sister had gone, she told her that her mother, Rena, had come to get her. This was the excuse that she gave to everyone who asked about Charmaine. She even told the local school that Charmaine had moved to Scotland to be with her mother. But the truth was, Rose had murdered Charmaine. No one knows exactly how she did it. Many think she just lost her temper one day and beat her to death or strangled her. But either way, Charmaine was never seen again. When Fred was finally released from prison, he didn't seem too concerned about Charmaine. When Anna Marie asked about her sister, he gave her the same response. That Charmaine had returned to live with her mother. But in reality, Rose had stowed Charmaine's body in a coal cellar. Until Fred got out of prison. Rose told Fred where she was hidden and later buried her naked body in the yard near the back door of the flat where they lived. Before he buried her, he removed her finger, wrist, toe, ankle bone, and kneecap, and many believe he actually kept them as keepsakes. After mutilating and burying her, Fred and Rose kept up the lie that Charmaine had returned to live with her mother, Rena. But there was one major problem with their lie. Rena had kept in contact with her children throughout the years. Even though she wasn't always present, she was always extremely anxious and depressed about her children's welfare. She knew Fred's address, and she knew where her daughters lived. So when Charmaine went missing, Rena went to confront Fred. Even though this was a huge problem for Fred and Rose, this opened up an opportunity that Fred had been waiting for for years. Sadly, this visit would be the last time that Rena would be seen alive. Many believed he invited her into his house on Midland Road. He then got her extremely drunk to the point where she was incoherent, and then he strangled her to death. He dismembered and mutilated her body the same way he did to Anne McFall, the nanny's friend. He cut off several of her fingers and toes and then put her dismembered remains into several bags, and he buried her body not far from Anne's remains. With Rena and Anne out of his way, Rose became the only woman in his life. And on January 29, 1972, Fred and Rose got married. They went into the Gloucester Register office and signed the paperwork. No family and friends were invited except for Fred's brother John, who was his best man. And within a few months after their marriage, Rose was pregnant with her second child. The couple needed more space, so they moved out to a nearby house at 25. Cromwell Street. It was a three-story rental that Fred later purchased, and this was the house that would later be known as the House of Horrors. Before we get into what occurred in the West House of Horrors, I'm going to take a quick break. Thank our sponsors, and I'll be right back. And as early as Fred couldn't remember, he wasn't interested in ordinary sex. He needed voyeurism bondage, sex toys, violence, and taboo. And to boost their prostitution business, Fred would take erotic pictures of Rose and turn them into swinger ads in local magazines. 
Their sexual perversions got so twisted that they soon turned on their own family. And they teamed up against Fred's oldest daughter, Anna Marie. They ordered her down to the cellar where they made her undress in front of them. And at first, Anna Marie hesitated. So Rose approached her and started tearing the clothes off her body. Fred then gagged and raped her while Rose watched. Afterwards, Rose led Anna Marie to the bathroom where she laughed at her pain. She explained to the child that everybody has to go through it. It was the father's job to have sex with his daughter. And then she told her not to tell anybody. As Anna Marie grew into her teens, Rose treated her like a slave around the house. She tied her to furniture and made Fred rape her as she watched. She also forced her to do a household chores while she wore a miniskirt. By the time she was 13, they also forced her into prostitution, and she had sex with their clients. They told the clients that she was 16 years old, and Rose always came into the room with her to make sure she didn't tell the clients that she was only 13. Meanwhile, they gave birth to another daughter on June 1st, 1972, and they named her May June. At this point, Rose was only 18 years old. And most of their income came from sex work and renting out homes in the house. Her clients were both men and women, and she often bragged that no one could completely satisfy her. When she had sex with women, her violence in the bedroom would escalate, which Fred enjoyed while looking through the people on the other side of the wall. Rose would begin suffocating them and using larger sex toys on them. And when the women resisted or expressed any fear or pain, Rose would get more excited. Together, Fred and Rose enjoyed taking people beyond their typical sexual limits. They enjoyed dominance and violence in the bedroom, and their closets became filled with bondage and restraining devices. They also began a large collection of pornographic magazines and photographs, which escalated to bestiality and child abuse. They also had an entire room dedicated to prostitution, and this was known as Rose's room. Several more peepholes were installed into the walls, as well as baby monitors a private bar, and a red light on the outside of the door that acted as a do-not-disturb warning. Only one key existed for this room, and Rose carried it around her neck. Fred also installed a separate doorbell specifically for their clients. A lot of the money they made from sex work they put into the house upgrades, and they now made enough money to live a comfortable life. As the years passed, Rose's father Bill started to come around more often. He began to respect Fred. He saw that he could provide for his daughter but he didn't know exactly how Fred was making the money. Regardless, Bill and Fred eventually grew close enough to open a cafe together that they named the Green Lantern, but it went out of business soon after. After running a business together, Bill and Fred remained friends even though their cafe failed. Bill eventually became curious about how Fred and Rose were making their money, and he eventually discovered the disturbing truth. When he realized that they had a full sex work operation in their house, he didn't have the reaction that most fathers would. Instead, he visited their house often and rang the client doorbell. After being greeted at the door, Bill would then walk down to Rose's room, and the light would turn red after he entered. Then he would actually pay to have sex with his own daughter. A few years prior, Bill was disgusted at the idea that Rose was with Fred, and now Bill was a regular client, and at their house quite often. Since Fred and Rose had some extra money, the West hired a 17-year-old nanny named Caroline Owens. They had picked her up one night while she was hitchhiking back to her home along a country road. She casually told them she was looking for a job, so the West offered her a job as a nanny to their three children. A few days later, Caroline eagerly moved into their house on 25 Cromwell Street. She was excited to finally move out of her mother's house and have a job that could support her. She ended up sharing a room with Anna Marie, and as Caroline tried to make conversation with her, she noticed Anna Marie was very withdrawn and quiet. At first, she thought this was just her personality. But she had no idea the absolute horrors that were taking place behind locked doors, but she would soon find out herself. Caroline quickly noticed the droves of men entering the house and heading into Rose's room. But Fred and Rose explained that Rose worked as a masseuse, and she had many clients. She also noticed that every time she talked with Fred, he always brought up inappropriate sexual topics, even when it wasn't explicitly sexual. There were always sexual undertones in everything he said. He later brought up the fact that he was skilled at performing abortions. 
He even claimed that some of the women he performed abortions on were so happy about the work he had done that they offered him sex as a reward. And once Fred started making sexual advances toward Caroline, she knew she needed to leave. When she told the West that she was quitting, Fred and Rose began forming a plan. He wanted to see how far his wife Rose would go with his sexual violence outside of the bedroom. So he told her they needed to abduct Caroline. And Rose agreed without hesitating. So on December 6, 1972, the couple got in their car and spotted Caroline trying to hitchhike home. They pulled over and began apologizing to Caroline for how Fred had acted and the things that he had said. After she accepted their apology, she also accepted their offer to give her a ride home. She thought they were being honest and had good intentions, but about halfway through the drive, Rose began funneling Caroline in the back seat. When Caroline tried to fight back, Fred stopped the car and called her a bitch. He then punched her in the head and knocked her unconscious before binding and gagging her with a scarf and duct tape. When she came to, she woke up in the cellar of their house, and they forced her to drink a drugged cup of tea. When she passed out again, they sexually assaulted her for hours. Fred took off his leather belt and began whipping her across the arms and genitals. When Caroline regained consciousness during the attack, she began screaming as loud as she could. Then Rose grabbed a nearby pillow and smothered her with it. When Caroline realized she was tied up and it was impossible to fight back, she stopped resisting. They left her restrained in one of the bedrooms, and when she woke up alone, she began screaming again. Fred then came to the door and threatened that he would lock her up in the cellar and get his friends to abuse her if she didn't stop screaming. He also threatened to kill her and said that he had already killed hundreds of young girls. After some time passed, Fred and Rose calmly asked Caroline if she would consider returning to work as a nanny. Seeing that this was her only way to escape, she agreed. For a moment, she returned to vacuuming the house so that it would look like she was back in their good graces. She even helped Rose carry several loads of laundry to the local laundromat. And while Rose was putting a load into one of the machines, Caroline escaped. She made it all the way back to her mother's house. And when her mother saw that her body was covered with bruises and exposed wounds, she asked her what had happened. At first, Caroline was too ashamed to say anything, but eventually she burst into tears and told her mother the horrors that she had went through. At that point, her mother immediately reported the crimes to the police, and the West were arrested and charged with indecent assault, actual bodily harm, and rape, and it looked like the killer couple were finally going to get what they deserved. Their court date was set for January 12, 1973, but after everything, Caroline decided she couldn't bring herself to testifying in court since they had almost no case against them. Without Caroline testifying, most of their charges were dropped, and they ended up pleading guilty to reduce charges of indecent assault and causing bodily harm. And believe it or not, Fred and Rose paid a small fine and then walked free. When Caroline heard the news, she attempted to kill herself. She realized that they were going to get away with the horrors that they had put her through because she didn't testify. And these horrors were just the beginning. 25 Cromwell Street was about to become the place of nightmares if it wasn't already, and the West's children would live these nightmares every single day. By 1983, Rose would give birth to a total of eight children. At least three of them were conceived by clients, but Fred accepted them as his own. Whenever they asked their father why they had darker skin than the other siblings, Fred told them that their great-grandmother was a black woman. In reality, it was because they had no idea who the biological father was. By the time each of their children reached the age of seven, they were given strict chores around the house. They weren't allowed to socialize outside of the home unless their parents were present. And in general, the house had strict rules. If these rules weren't followed, severe punishment followed. Most of it involved physical abuse, and Rose took the role of the main enforcer. Sometimes she abused her kids for no reason at all and she made sure never to leave any bruises or marks on her kids' hands or faces. All of their wounds were underneath their clothes so other people couldn't see. Two of their older children once tried to run away from home. They stayed with friends and slept on the streets for two weeks, but eventually they realized that they wouldn't make it out on the streets, so they returned to the house on 25 Cromwell Street. Rose made an example of them and beat them mercilessly when they returned. Over the years, their children were admitted to local hospitals 31 different times. 
The injuries were always explained as accidents and they were never reported to social services. One time her son Stephen was mopping the kitchen floor. Rose entered the kitchen and accidentally stepped on the bowl of water he was using, spilling the dirty water everywhere. Even though it was Rose's fault, she smacked Stephen over the head with the bowl. After he fell to the ground, she kicked him in the head and in the chest over and over again. She screamed that he had placed the bowl there on purpose. There was another time where Rose thought that a kitchen utensil had gone missing. So she grabbed a kitchen knife and told her daughter May June to take off her shirt. She then held the knife up to May June's bare chest and began making shallow cuts across her rib cage. She did this until light knife wounds covered her entire chest. Stephen and Heather stood and watched in horror, crying helplessly. Rose was so abusive to her family that even Fred became a victim of her domestic violence. In August 1974, Rose flew into a rage and grabbed a carving knife from the kitchen. She began chasing Fred around the house, trying to stab him. Fred ran into one of the bedrooms and slammed the door behind him. Rose wasn't far behind and she tried to stab him the moment he slammed the door. She drove the knife into the wooden door and her hand slid up the handle towards the blade. She put so much force into her swing that three of her fingers slid across the blade and she nearly cut them off and she ended up blaming it on Fred and she forced him to take her to the hospital. If this was how they treated their own family members, you can only imagine how they treated strangers. It was only a matter of time until they escalated from assault to murder. By 1973, their home at 25 Cromwell Street became a nest for perverts and degenerates, including themselves. It became a popular place when more and more people found out about what went on inside. In early 1973, Fred and Rose met a 19-year-old named Linda Goff. She was introduced to them by a male client, and she often visited their house on Cromwell Street to sleep with two of the men that stayed on the upper floor. On April 19th, she moved into the house, and the West also hired her as their live-in nanny. But by the next day, she was caught hitting one of the children, and she was told to leave. But she never really left the house. Fred and Rose made it look like they kicked her out. But Linda became a victim of the house of horrors. Fred and Rose wrapped surgical tape into her mouth and around her head until her screams were completely muffled. They then inserted two small tubes into her nasal cavity so that she could still breathe. They then bound her with ropes and suspended her from a wooden beam support in the ceiling of the cellar. And she was most likely killed by strangulation or suffocation. But after she died, Fred dismembered the body. But he made sure to hold on to five vertebrae, her kneecaps and several fingers, and then he buried her in a pit beneath the garage. When Linda's mother called a few days later to ask where her daughter was, they told her that they had kicked her out of the house after she hit one of their kids. After Linda's death, the West realized that they could easily get away with murder. So in November 1973, the couple abducted a 15-year-old girl named Carol Ann Cooper. Carol Ann was an orphan who lived in a nearby children's home. She had just seen a movie with her boyfriend and was waiting for a bus when Fred rolled up in his car. When nobody else was around, he dragged her into his car, bound her face and arms with surgical tape, and then used braided cloth to tie around her arms. He drove her back to Cromwell Street where he took her down to the cellar and suspended her from the wooden beams. After sexually abusing her for hours, he strangled her to death. And like the others, he dismembered her body and then he buried her in a shallow grave beneath the cellar. Fred quickly saw that he needed to expand his operation if they were going to keep killing young women, so he began several more home improvements. He actually enlarged the cellar, demolished the garage, and built an extension to the main house. Neighbors noticed, though, that he did the improvements at strange hours in the night. It was most likely because he didn't want them to see the decaying bodies that he was crushing and moving around in the dirt where he was working. With that, I'm going to take one final break, and I'll be right back. So circling back, as time has gotten on, Fred and Rose West are just getting more bold. They're realizing that it's fairly easy for them to abduct a victim and murder them without really creating any suspicion, having any police presence on their radars. So about a month later, Fred and Rose set their sights on their next victim, Lucy Partington. And they found Lucy at a local bus stop. She was on her way home after the holidays. 
and it was like any other Christmas up until she ran into Fred and Rose at the bus stop that day. With no one around, they knocked her out and shoved her into the car. When she woke up, she was bound and suspended in the cellar like the girls before her. They sexually assaulted her and tortured her for a week straight until finally killing and dismembering her body. Since Fred had several construction projects in the works, he had plenty of places to disguise her burial. But while he was dismembering her, the knife slipped and he cut his hand open, and he had to rush to the hospital for stitches on January 3, 1974. Not long after, Carol and Lucy were both reported missing. Police knew the women were last seen at the bus stops, but besides that, they had nothing to go on. So from April 1974 to April 1975, Fred and Rose kidnapped, tortured, and murdered three more young women between the ages of 15 and 21. They dismembered the bodies and buried them under the cellar along with the others. Each murder they carried out became more and more extreme. By now, Fred and Rose had developed a violent bondage fetish, and after tying up their victims, they would sometimes keep them there for days or weeks. An 18-year-old victim named Juanita Mott was dressed in a brassiere and a pair of tights. They used lengths of washing lines to tie around her arms, thighs, wrists, ankles, and head. The ropes were tied horizontally, vertically, backward, and forward across her body until she couldn't move. And like the others, she was suspended in the air with a thick rope hanging from the wooden beam. Even though their sexual violence in the cellar was kept hidden, Fred kept popping up on the police's radar. To keep up with his home improvement projects, he kept stealing building materials and fences from nearby properties and home improvement stores. He would also use concrete to hide the bodies that were buried beneath the cellar. And the bodies began to add up. All of the buried women had been used for sexual release but one victim in particular was killed for a different reason. In April of 1977, Fred met an 18-year-old named Shirley Robinson. She stayed in one of the rooms on the upper floors. She soon became pregnant, and they all believed that the father was Fred. At first, Rose was excited that Shirley carried Fred's child. Rose had been impregnated with other men's children, so she figured Fred could impregnate other women. But over time, Rose developed a deep resentment and jealousy towards Shirley. She feared that their marriage was on the verge of collapse and she became extremely jealous. Eventually, Shirley was murdered and dismembered into small pieces and there was no evidence of any restraining devices or sexual abuse found on her body. Her unborn baby had been removed from her womb and had several bones missing. Many believe Shirley was a victim of jealousy and there was no sexual motive behind her death. She had become the exception. But a few summers later, the West returned to their old ways one last time. The last known murder that had a sexual motive happened on August 5th, 1979. The victim was a 16-year-old named Allison Chambers. She had recently run away from a local children's home and became the live-in nanny for the West's children in the summer of 1979. She lived in the house for several weeks, but soon enough, the West raped and killed her just like the others. And since they were running out of room beneath the cellar floor, they buried her beneath their garden outside. After this murder, Fred finished pouring the cement over the other bodies and converted the cellar into a bedroom for their oldest children. Oh my god. Alongside the women that were abducted, raped, tortured, and murdered in the cellar, many of Fred and Rose's children also became the focus of their sexual abuse. They often abused Anna Marie, and she became pregnant with Fred's child, but had to be terminated due to pregnancy complications. Only a few days after returning from the operation, her mother beat her in the stomach for failing to keep the child. And this was the final straw for Anna Marie. She finally ran away from the house of horrors in 1979. She was only 15 years old but suffered the trauma of several lifetimes over. Once she was gone, Fred turned his attention toward two of his other daughters, Heather and May. Once they reached puberty, the sexual abuse was non-stop. And Fred would always tell them that he could do whatever he wanted because he created them. He also told them he was trying to impregnate them, but Heather and May weren't the only target of their father's assault. He also enjoyed watching pornography with the whole family. He then told his son Stephen that he needed to have sex with his mother by the age of 17, or they would kick him out of the house. Heather, May, and Stephen were all close in age. They were the oldest now that Anna Marie was gone, so they banded together as much as they could. They promised each other that no one could be alone with their father, and they would only undress and take showers when he wasn't home. 
or if one of them was guarding the door. Over time, they always fantasized about running away from home. Heather even had a specific fantasy of living alone in the forest and never seeing another human being again. But sadly, her fantasy would never come true. Heather was known for her good grades and good behavior at school, and she often told her classmates and friends about the abuse she suffered at home. They also noticed that she bit her fingernails until they bled, which was a sign of psychological distress, and she suffered from strange outbursts at school. But for the most part, she was always respectful and obedient to teachers. But when she was told to change out of her gym clothes or shower after a sporting activity, she always refused. One time, she was forced to shower in the locker room, and her classmates and staff noticed the welted bruises across her arms, legs, and torso. She said they were just wounds from fighting with her siblings. But finally, she told one of her closest friends that her parents often beat her, and her mother often called her a little bitch. When Heather was in high school, rumors started spreading around the school. Even though Fred and Rose told their kids never to talk about their life at home, Heather secretly told her close friends that many of the rumors about her family were true. One of her friend's fathers was friends with Fred and Rose West. So as the rumors spread, this friend eventually told Fred and Rose what he had heard was going around the school. Fred was so haunted by the rumors that he began dropping off Heather and picking her up from school every day, and he kept a close eye on her so she wouldn't reveal the secrets of 25 Cromwell Street. Heather eventually dropped out in 1986 when she was 16 years old, and she applied for a handful of jobs so that she could save up enough money and move away from that house of horrors. After searching for jobs, she was confident she could get a job cleaning rooms at a holiday camp in the seaside town of Torquay. She patiently waited for a response for the job application, and on June 18, 1987, she received a notification that her application was unsuccessful. After reading the rejection letter, she crumpled into tears in front of May and Stephen. She thought this was her only shot of leaving the house of horrors. The entire evening, Heather cried her eyes out. According to her sister May, she cried through the entire night. Everyone could hear her wailing through the walls. The next morning, she saw Heather rocking back and forth in her chair in the living room, biting her fingernails until they bled. She looked miserable. While the rest of her siblings went to school, Heather stayed in their chair, staring out the window. When her siblings returned home after school, later in the day, Heather was gone. When they asked her mother Rose where she was, she told them Heather ended up accepting the job she had applied for, but May and Stephen were confused because they knew that she didn't get the job from the night before. After several days passed, some of the children asked why Heather didn't bother to call or visit since getting the job and Rose and Fred made up a lie that Heather had eloped with a lesbian lover, and she would never come back. May and Stephen said that they should report her missing to the police. But when they told her parents this, they said, well, Heather is in trouble because of credit card fraud. So if the police ever found her, she would be arrested. And every time they kept bringing Heather up, Fred and Rose continued to make up excuses. But the truth was, Rose had killed her daughter and cut her into tiny pieces on the day that she had disappeared. Actually, I have a little clip of Fred West talking about burying Heather. You know, and I couldn't think of nothing. I mean, Heather, I mean, I thought a bloody world of Heather. So I got to grips with it after a while. And the first thing that came into my mind was, I'm going to have to take this. And sort it out. Which I did all the messes Rose got herself into. I took the looking rap for him and helped him out of it. So anyway, I said, look, you'll have to tell me exactly what happened. She said that um, Heather was cut up. Well, I never felt so ill in all my life for a few seconds, a few minutes before I could get a grip of myself again. And I said, what on earth did you cut her up for? She said she wouldn't fit in a dustbin. Now the thing that makes it hard that she cut Heather up and chucked her in a fucking dustbin her daughter in a dustbin apparently Rose stuffed her daughter into a dustbin and when Fred got home he buried his daughter's remains in the garden several years passed and Heather's disappearance was still a mystery to everyone except her parents and the West thought that the secrets of 25 Cromwell Street were buried as deep as their daughter was 
But ever since Heather disappeared, their oldest children, Stephen and May, were afraid to contact the police or tell anyone what was happening in the home. Heather had been the closest one to spilling the secrets of the House of Horrors, and they realized her disappearance might not have been a coincidence. So for their own safety, they kept quiet. Several years passed, and their other daughter, Louise, turned 13. Like the others, this was usually the age when Fred sexually assaulted his children. Louise was treated no differently. In May of 1992, Fred led Louise to her room, and the rest of the siblings heard her screaming protest through the house walls. The oldest siblings knew what was happening. Later, when Rose got home, Louise told her mother that her father had raped and sodomized her. He also strangled her until she almost fell unconscious. And Rose's only response was, You were asking for it. Fred then raped his daughter several more times over the next week. One time, he even filmed himself doing it. Rose would just stand by and watch as her daughter later limped to the bathroom, bleeding. All Rose would say was, Well, what did you expect? Louise eventually got enough courage to tell a close friend what her father was doing to her. Her friend then told her own mother on August 4th, and the friend's mother then anonymously informed the police of what was actually going on. On August 6th, 1992, police actually got a search warrant for the West household and said that they were looking for stolen property. They ended up finding a ton of sexual paraphernalia, including almost 100 pornographic videos, but none of them incriminated Fred or Rose. Louise then made a full statement to the police describing what Fred had done to her, and the following day all the children were placed into foster care. Soon Louise's medical examination showed evidence of physical and sexual abuse. After police interviewed each of the children, they said their mother had inflicted most of the physical abuse, and Fred constantly threatened them, saying that he would bury them under the patio just like their sister Heather if they told anyone what was going on. At that point, a full-scale police investigation began. Fred was arrested and later charged with three counts of rape and one count of sodomy. Rose was also arrested and charged as an accomplice. They also charged her with obstructing the police, child cruelty, and inciting her husband to engage in sex with their daughter. When police asked Fred and Rose about their daughter Heather, Fred claimed she was alive and worked as a prostitute. Rose claimed she had no idea what happened to her or why she left. A few days later, she claimed that Heather had left because Rose didn't want her other children to know that Heather was a lesbian. She also said that she maintained contact with Heather over the phone. A day later, they granted Rose bail on the condition that she had no contact with her children, her stepdaughter, or her husband. While Fred sat in jail awaiting trial, his oldest daughter, Anna Marie, contacted police and offered a full statement detailing her physical, mental, and sexual abuse as a child. She was now 28 years old and married. Then she agreed to testify against both her father and stepmother, Rose. She also mentioned that she failed to find her mother, Rena, and her sisters, Charmaine and Heather. Everything was finally coming together in the case against Fred and Rose West. It seemed like the missing link was Heather, but the police couldn't find any trace of her. Even the Social Security Department had no records of her ever being alive. Either way, their court case was scheduled for June 7, 1993 and everything depended on Anna Marie and Louise. They needed to testify so they could convict their parents, but both of them dropped out at the last second. Louise said she just wanted to return to her family. She didn't want to see her father charged, and she denied everything surrounding her molestation. And Anna Marie worried about the misery of her younger siblings, and she still worried about the wrath of her stepmother Rose. So both Fred and Rose West were acquitted of all charges again, but this time, all their younger children remained in foster care with permitted supervised visitation. When Fred and Rose returned home, they told their neighbors and family members that the charges had been fabricated by the police. Either way, they were happy to be home, but they didn't know the police weren't done with them yet. Investigators looked into the disappearance of Rena and Charmaine, who had been gone missing since 1971. But no missing person report had ever been filed for either of them. As for Heather, many of the investigators believed that she was dead. So in February of 1994, Gloucester police got a search warrant for 25 Cromwell Street to look for Heather's remains. One morning, police knocked on the front door and showed Rose a search warrant. They remembered her turning white as a ghost. 
She then turned and screamed at one of her kids to go get Fred. Fred was working in a nearby town at the time and he said he would be home as soon as possible, but he didn't get back until three hours later. In the meantime, police questioned Rose and pointed out the inconsistencies in her stories. She then became distraught and abusive towards the officers and she screamed at them and said, I can't fucking remember. What do you think I am? A bloody computer? As for Fred, he said that Heather was still alive, but she was involved in a drug cartel. When they asked why he had told his children that Heather was buried beneath the family patio, he said, Ah, uh, it was rubbish. Then he claimed that the police had a grudge against him since he was acquitted of raping his daughter. Since neither of them were giving any information, the police then planned an excavation site at the home. May and Stephen noticed their parents whispering to each other and looking out towards the garden. Early the next morning, the police showed up with tools and bulldozers to begin the excavation. But before they began their search, Fred told Stephen to take care of his mother while he was gone. He then went over to the police officers and asked to be arrested for the murder of Heather. He wanted to be taken to the police station so that he could provide a full confession. And by 11.15 that morning, Fred officially confessed to murdering his daughter. He told them he had strangled her in a fit of rage and dismembered her body with a serrated knife. He insisted that his wife had no knowledge of the crime. He said he had committed the murder when Rose was with one of her clients. He then showed police the exact spot in the garden where he had buried his daughter. Police later told May and Stephen that their father confessed to Heather's murder. In response, Stephen slumped against a wall and began to cry. May entered a state of shock and disbelief. Not long after, as the police dug through the garden, a human thigh bone stuck out from the dirt. After finding several more human bones and a skull, they identified Heather West through dental records. Fred then confessed that there were two more sets of human remains in his garden. And after those two were found, police made the decision to thoroughly search the entire property. Fred then passed a note to the police, confessing to nine more murders. He told them that there were six more bodies on the property. Five were underneath the cellar and one beneath the bathroom floor. Almost every victim that the police dug up showed signs of extreme abuse before their murder. Many of the bodies were found with gags down their throat and ropes that were tied around skulls, ankles, and wrists. After uncovering all of the bodies at the property, none of them formed a full skeleton. They all had fingers or kneecaps missing since Fred had kept those as souvenirs and they were all buried vertically instead of in shallow graves. Fred often used the sharp end of a shovel to decapitate the bodies after he slid them into their holes. Then he would shove the heads down towards the chest as far as he could. Other times he would dismember the bodies with a large serrated knife. Here's a clip of Fred from his police interview. I looked around everywhere trying to find a knife for summer. I mean, I looked at the axe, I had a chop axe, chop, and I, I mean, I could, there's no way I could touch it to touch her with it. Not that case or with anything like that. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So I went, I, I looked up and I see this knife sticking out. It got like two prongs on the end, two sharp points comes out on the end of it, and then it got big serrated edges all along it. You saw blocks of ice with And I got that, and, and I tried it with the big ones first, and and it, it was terrible, man. It was, they were, I'm sweating, I'm, I'm just about everything that's going on this time. So I finally managed to do, do it, to take Red off, and then her legs. And it was oh, unbearable. And I mean, I can hear that now in my sleep. I wake up very often screaming about when I can hear that, that go in. That's easy, I, She's looking at me, I thought. You know, that's simple, isn't it? Somebody sat there looking at you, you're not going to. He was a knife on a person, are you? And I just went like that and right and closed your eyes and the stage shut. That was that. After everything, though, Fred insisted that his wife Rose had nothing to do with the murders, but police suspected that he was lying. And they arrested Rose on April 20th, 1994. Four days later, she was formally charged with the murder of Linda Goff. About a week later, Fred and Rose were jointly charged with five counts of murder. During almost every single one of the 46 interviews police had with Rose, she swore she was innocent. On the other hand, Fred also confessed to the murders of his first wife and stepdaughter. And he identified all of the burial locations. Police transferred him to the Birmingham prison where he was put on strict suicide watch. 
Guards were forced to check him every 15 minutes. In the end, on June 30th, 1994, Fred was formally charged with 12 murders, and Rose was charged with 9. A few days later, they had identified Anne McFall's body, and they charged Fred with another murder. As he was held in prison, Fred became more depressed by the day. After seeing his wife for the first time since they were arrested, Fred tried to put his arm around his wife, but Rose winced and tried to get away from him. Ever since that, his depression worsened, and the more she pushed away, the more he resented her. In response, Fred ended up accusing Rose of total culpability in all the murders, except Anne McFall. While awaiting trial, Fred's suicide watch was relaxed, but on January 1st, 1995, he made an improvised noose constructed from blankets and tags he stole from prison laundry. He put the noose around his neck and tied it to a door handle and sank to his knees. A suicide note was later found in a cell, and it read, In loving memory, Fred West, Rose West, rest in peace where no shadow falls. In perfect peace, he waits for Rose, his wife. As for Rose's fate, she was later charged with the murder of Charmaine West. She pleaded not guilty to ten murder charges, but after a seven-week trial, she was found guilty of all ten murders, and she was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Today, she serves her sentence in H.M. Prison, Newhall, and she still claims she's completely innocent. As for the children, many went in a foster care system and have suffered from PTSD. Fred claimed that he fathered up to 42 children total, but no one knows for sure. Most of them have faded into their own private lives, hoping to distance themselves from their parents. Disgusting legacy. Years after the horrors inside the house on 25 Cromwell Street were revealed to the world, the property was demolished in 1996. A pedestrian walkway now cuts through where the bodies of young women were once buried. Locals have tried to forget the nightmares that have once infested the property, but Fred and Rose West have left a permanent mark of terror on Gloucester. The sexual assaults and murders against strangers and their own family members will never be forgotten. And their crimes are a reminder of how complicated convictions are when it comes to victims testifying against their attackers, especially when the assailants are their own family members. Fred and Rose walked free for years because these sexual assault cases fell through the cracks and their sexual violence went on, unrestricted for years. Two decades, too many. If monsters like Fred and Rose West can slip through the system for so long, Imagine how many more monsters walk away with no consequences. That concludes the disturbing case of Fred and Rose West. In the end, justice was served, but it took way too long for it to happen. I don't know what was going on with the courts then and why these cases fell through the cracks as much as they did. But my God... Did the system fail? The victims and the children of Fred and Rose West. There's really not much else to say, so I'm going to end this episode by reading off the names of the victims. Because it's important that they're always remembered. And that hopefully Fred and Rose West are eventually forgotten. The victims are as follows. Anne McFall, 18 years old. Charmaine West, 8 years old. Catherine Bernadette Rena West, 27. Linda Carol Goff, 19. Carol Ann Cooper, 15. Lucy Catherine Partington, 21. Teresa Sigenthaler, 21. Shirley Hubbard, 15. Juanita Mott, 18. Shirley Ann Robinson, 18. Allison Jane Chambers, 16. Heather Ann West. These are known victims, and of course, there may have even been more. I mean, Fred claimed to have fathered 42 children, so we have no idea. Maybe they disposed of some others 
in other places that have never been found, but my God, what a horrific story. These guys, some of the worst people to ever walk the earth. But I'm going to go ahead and end today's episode there. Thank you again for joining me for another episode of Lights Out, and I'll see you next time. Until then, Lights Out, everybody.